Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday, Baker. Yeah. Happy Super Bowl Sunday over in the sanctuary. Maybe you're listening online. So I think there are really three different types of fans here today. Uh, I see someone in a jersey. I wondered if there would be any jerseys showing up today. That would be an Eagles jersey. Yes, uh-huh. I think there were, of course, Eagles fans. Anyone here an Eagles fan today? Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Patriots? Anyone? And then, I think the third category, you may not be an Eagles fan, you just don't want the Patriots to win. <laughs> I thought that may grab a bunch of you. I think that's probably me. Uh, I'm on record, but they just keep winning. I don't know. Come on. You need someone else to win. Amen. That's right. So, uh, it's, a, it's a great day. And... We are making our way through the Gospel of John. Grab your Bibles, would you? Your handhelds. Dig in with me, church. We're digging into John. And uh, this year, we're literally going to uh, read, think about, examine every word. And in fact, I'm, I want to make you students of the Bible as we really make our way through this. I'm going to just start with a principle, even as we dig into John 1 again today. And it's this principle, the way the Bible is written tells us as much as what is written. What that means, what I mean when I say that, and what biblical interpreters, when they read a text, you're not just, you're not just reading it in a kind of just a fly-by, fly-over-it sort of a way. You're really listening to not just the words, but the order of the words. Why did God arrange things the way that he did, because quite honestly, as we dig into John 1, I'm going to be honest, as I look at John 1, 1 through 18, and we're going to go back and just re-look at 1 through 18 as we dig into the rest of the, or the next section of the scripture that has to do with John the Baptist. I was really struck by the fact that if I were the editor of John 1, which I'm not, this is the Holy Spirit's work, but if I were the editor of John 1, um, I would have changed a few things. I really would. And let me kind of illustrate what I mean by that. We appreciate uh, Nathan reading for us here in the Baker from John uh, 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Was God. He was with God, Jesus. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning, we're talking all the way back before the, even the creation of time. The scope of all things. Through him, all things were made. So John is taking us back to eternity past, even before time and light were created. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light, so this is where John goes right out of the gate as he's describing Jesus. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, what I've put there is a dash. And I jump us to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. See, in verse 5, he's establishing the light shining in the darkness. And then he says in verse 9, the true light 
that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That, to me, just really has a nice flow to it. So if I'm the editor of John 1, which I'm not, God is, but if I'm the editor, that's how I would have edited this. Just seems like a natural flow, but what did I leave out? Boom, 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Well, wait, wait a minute. Why am I learning about him right now? Just keep me on this upper flow. But we hear about John. He gets tucked in there. I actually would have put verse 6 down right before verse 19, right? Now, this was John's testimony. So we start in verse 19 with John the Baptist and his role in this whole story. To me, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Works way better after 18 and before 19 because then we shift to that. But no, we've got John there in the middle. And then jump down to like verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. All right, now we're talking about the glory of Jesus and how, what word does John use to express the glory of Jesus? Full. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And then we jump down to verse 16, right? For out of His, what? Fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. That to me just has a much better flow to it. 14 down to 16, and yet what's tucked in there? Well, 15, right? This little parenthesis that again refers us to who? To John the Baptist. Why does John the Baptist keep interrupting the flow of this thought? <laughs> if I'm the editor of the Bible, which I'm not, God is. But to me, verse 15 would work way better between verses 20 and 21. I'm not the Messiah, John said, for John testified. Verse 15, concerning him, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke of. And, uh, and then they asked him, who are you? are you? So as I read this, I think, oh, why does John keep popping up in the middle of this glorious theological statement of Jesus? Just seems a little out of place to me. Why does John, the, the apostle, introduce us to John the Baptist like this? Again, I would just simply posit to you that for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it just seems so out of place. But what was the principle? The way things are written are just is just as important as what is said. So that ought to clue us into something. As we read through Scripture, we, we need to take a step back and say, okay, okay. Obviously, God had a reason for inserting these little tidbits about John before he actually gets to the part of the story that describes John the Baptist. So why did he do it? That's kind of what I want to get us to because there's something to be learned big time. And I've, uh, to help explain it, I've talked about in the last few years, we talked about the upper story and the lower story. How we can view life through these two lenses. The upper story being what God is doing in the scope of history. The big picture. The, the, the macro. Uh, you know, how God is in control of all things. That we are part of, a, of, a, of an upper story of God's unfolding in, in the big picture. The lower story, of course, is our lives. Every day. 
how we live out the upper story in our lower story individual lives. And I'm going to tell you right now that as a lost world experiences God, as a lost world experiences God, I'm telling you right now, they have a general sense of the upper story. When they see, in fact, the Bible talks about that. this. Uh, when they see you know, this upper story of eternity past, creation and light, the word incarnate, rebirth and life, this is John 1, 1 through 18. This is the basic flow of thought. And, and as the world experiences God, they might see the beauty of a thunderstorm and think, Wow, what power is, you know, where does that come from? Or the the beautiful clouds in the sky or sunsets to see the beauty of the earth in a sunset. Or, you know, we couldn't quite see it here in Franklin County, but the super blue blood red moon, right? That happens once every 150 years. Or just the galaxies. So, yes, I believe a lost world, when they see the majesty of creation, they might get a sense of John 1, 1 through 18, the upper story. But you know how a lost world, how each and every one of us are truly going to experience the love of God? How are we going to truly experience the knowledge, the saving knowledge that Jesus is the light, that he is the way? I'm going to tell you right now, someone needs to tell them. There needs to be a very specific testimony. You see, God doesn't just stop with all creation and he doesn't just stop with the upper story. God doesn't just stop there. Thanks be to him. Which leads me to principle two. God's way of letting the light shine in the world, here you go, is through us. And I'm going to tell you right now, I believe this principle is the answer to the question, why does John the Baptist keep showing up in odd places in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? Because as John is making this upper story case of an awesome God, the light of the world, the light shining in the darkness, that Jesus is the life of all of humanity. We just keep seeing John showing up in that moment, connecting us to the fact that the way people hear that message is through us. God's way of pushing back the darkness is us. That each and every day, we are the light of Christ. And I believe that's exactly why God chose to keep inserting John the Baptist in there. Because he's making the upper story case. And then he says, and you know what? John came to point us to him. Just like we come into the world and come into people's lives to point them to Jesus. So let's keep going. I've referenced these introductions to John, but now let's... Hear his story. Now, this was John's testimony. And by the way, I'll clue you into a few things as we read. We're going to hear some language here with respect to John the Baptist that really kind of harkens to, um, to what it means to make a case, to give witness. We have some language here that you might hear even in a courtroom, testimony, 
witness, right? Those are some kind of courtroom language. Now this, I just want to clue you into that because that's kind of how John comes, John the Apostle comes at what John the Baptist really did. He made a case for Christ. This was John's testimony. By the way, pause, testimony. When you're called upon to give a testimony, are you just kind of making stuff up off the top of your head when you're giving a testimony? You, let's say, I hope not. If you're sworn into a court of law, you're like in trouble if you start making stuff up, right? Because a testimony is written, is, I'm sorry, rooted in what? Truth and experience, right? Isn't a testimony rooted in what you've experienced? This has happened to me. This is my testimony. This is my experience. This is what I have seen, what I have heard, what I have experienced. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Who are you? Who are you? And I'll tell you, I'll clue you right now the fact that they had a real bias. Because later on when they asked Jesus who he was, he referenced back to this very moment. And he said, all right, John's testimony, was it from God or was it from man? And they thought, if we say it was from God, then we've got to believe everything we said. But if we say it was from man, then people are going to rise up against us because everyone in those times really kind of thought John was from God. So they said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus then said, then neither do I know. You know, I, I got nothing to say because you're, you're putting me in a... Tr- people came to John in that moment. Who are you? He did not fail to confess, but freely confessed, I am not the Messiah. I'm going to clue you into another interesting word. And it's the word not. Over and over again in this brief passage, we run into the word not. What does that mean? Why does John keep, John the Baptist keep saying not? And uh, I want to I put before you the concept of, of, of mirror Mirror theology, okay, what do I mean by that? What's a mirror's motto? All right, stick with me on this. What is a mirror's motto? If a mirror were to have a a motto, mirror, mirror on the wall, what is your motto? What would you say? And a mirror's motto is this, it's not about me, right? Doesn't a mirror constantly say that? You look at a mirror and what's that mirror saying? It's about you. It's not about me, it's about you. I, every, it's not about me, that's a mirror's model, it, motto, it's all about you. Remember a song we sang a couple decades ago in the church? It's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me, right? It's for your glory and your fame. That's what John says. They say, who are you? He says, I am not the Messiah. They said, then who are you? Are, Elijah, are you Elijah. Because Elijah, right, in the Old Testament, he's one of the two guys in the Old Testament that didn't die. He was caught up by chariots of fire and taken up into glory. Elijah never died. Neither neither did a guy named Enoch way back in the early part of Genesis. He walked with God, the Bible says, and then he was not, for God took him. He beamed him up. So we got these two men. They said, are you a reincarnation of Elijah? What did he say? I'm not. That's not who I am. Are you the prophet? This is referring back to Deuteronomy when Moses made a prophetic statement about one day there will come a prophet. 
And he really was describing Jesus, but they're saying, are you the prophet? He said, no, not, it's not me. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. We've got to have an answer. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. I am here to just lay out a path for Jesus. God is using me to introduce His truth, His message, His light into the world. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to Him, they jumped in. Earlier it was the chief priests and Levites. Now it's a different group of people. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or if you're not Elijah or if you're not the prophet? He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. So he's indicating in the crowd there is the very one that he came to introduce someone. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am, what? Not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, let me just pause there to say, John and Jesus are second cousins. They're, re they're related. And I, I've also been to Galilee region, to, to Nazareth, and to these areas, and it's not a large area. I mean, it really isn't. So I am quite certain that John would have known Jesus. And yet, to this point, Jesus had not revealed himself as the Messiah. John would have, I'm sure, known Jesus as an amazing man, as a, a, a great moral person. He never seemed to do anything wrong. I know, right? You know, that, he would have known him that way. But you see, up to this point, Jesus had not been revealed as the Messiah. In fact, as John was preparing to begin his ministry, as God was calling John, God had said to him, you'll know who the Messiah is when you see heaven opened and the Son and the Spirit of God descending on him. Then you'll know who the guy is. So this is his testimony. This is what John says. He sees Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, eternal. I myself did not know him. He, well, he knew him as his second cousin, but he didn't know truly who he was. But the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed. Then John gave, again, what's the word testimony? This testimony. And a testimony is just, it's not theology, it's not making stuff up, or it's not anything, you know, it's just what's happened to you. This was his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. John's, I saw that happening. I watched it. I heard the voice from heaven say that everyone, are, this is my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. John knew that he knew that he knew that that had happened. And he also knew God had told him when that happened, or something like it, he's the guy. So John is simply giving this testimony. I myself did not know, well, I knew who he was, but I didn't know him in that way. 
But the one who sent me to baptize with water, God, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and John says, I testify that this is God's chosen one. So John's complete job here is to reflect the glory of Jesus. His whole job was to point people to Jesus, to tell others about Jesus, which to me speaks to what God is doing here in John 1. Yes, the upper story. Jesus is the Word. He is awesome. He is before time and after time. He is the light of the world, the life of all humankind. But then John comes to tell people that, to give testimony to that reality. And and as we think about what a witness does, a witness doesn't have to come up with anything. They just tell others what they themselves have seen. Is this soaking in? A witness just simply describes what they've seen and heard. They're not making anything up. They don't have to be deep theological scholars or having, you know, have, have gone and gotten a degree in the Bible. No, I'm just telling you what I've seen. A pastor friend of mine was telling the story about how when he went to a church, this was out in Oregon, when he went to a church to become the senior pastor, there was already this huge lawsuit. It was, he said it was just so sad. Someone was suing the church and he got sucked into it as the new pastor, and it, he was just, it was grinding him up. Of course it was, because it was just tearing the church, and you know, he said, we should have been sitting down together and praying for, with each other, and here we are in a courtroom, and he said, he went one morning, he had to give a, a deposition, and he said, the whole morning, he's like three hours, he was trying to figure out why, and give this, this, and that, that, and he said, it just didn't go well, I was so torn up, and we took a lunch break. He said, the attorney, my, my attorney came and he said, stop it. His name was John. John, stop. He said, you're not the judge. You're not the jury. You're not the attorney. He said, all you've got to do is just tell what you know. <laughs> just give your testimony. And John said it felt like a weight had been lifted off his shoulder. He said he went in and about 30 minutes later, he told him everything he knew and walked out, right? He did his job. He was just a witness. See, we are called to be what? Witnesses to the light, to the light. That is how God works in this world. And you know, we can often find ourselves asking God to do in us what he's done in somebody else. Oh, I don't have much of a testimony. How many times have I heard that? You know, I, you know, I just kind of have a normal life. God, I, wait a minute, what has God done in your life? What has God done for you? Just tell others what God has done for you because church, this is how God works in the world. Yes, we are part of the upper story, but the only way people are going to experience God and know his life and light is through us. We are his witnesses. And I believe that's exactly why God kept inserting John the Baptist into this high theology to say yes, and John gave testimony to this truth. And John came to tell others about this. It's exactly what he's called us to do. God's ultimate purpose isn't that we know more about Jesus, but that we experience life in his name. That's his purpose. And the only way that's going to happen for others 
The way it's happened for us is for someone to tell us about it. And we are then all given an invitation. And God is giving this invitation through us. And what is the invitation? I want to conclude today by using some words that um, probably one of, one of, without question, the greatest evangelists ever. He's still alive. His name is Billy Graham. Billy Graham is in his 100th year. He has probably, I would say, led more people to Jesus than anyone else in the history of the world in our lifetime. John, uh, Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, he would be an expert on, on allowing God to speak through you and what God, the invitation. And this is what he said. Let me just share in the words of Billy Graham. He said, again and again in the Bible, men and women are graciously invited to enter into personal fellowship with God. Someone has said that the Bible is a book of invitations from God to us, urging us to become His partners, here you go, in redeeming the world. Urging us to become His partners in the lower story, redeeming the world. The first invitation Jesus offers us is an invitation to rest. Anyone tired here this morning? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew 11. Since the early dawn of humankind, when our Eden of bliss became a desert of discord, welcome to the earth, we have been creatures of restlessness. We are bereft of the peace that comes from God through the saving grace of Christ. We become fish out of water. Divorce, alcoholism, immorality, all direct results of the restlessness of sin. This diabolical unrest has permeated our nation like a contagious disease and has become the underlying cause of domestic community, and societal problems. He wrote this six years ago. It's not getting any better. The basic cause of our national immorality is this spiritual unrest in people's lives today. In my travels around the country, I have sensed unrest in almost every phase of our modern day living. This changeable, unsettling, roving, transient, sleepless, and fidgety spirit is due to the restlessness of the human heart and its separation from the Christ of tranquility and peace. These insecure individuals could find spiritual peace and physical rest by surrendering their lives to Christ. Every day I come in contact with mixed up, paradoxical people, rich people who are held in the grip of insecurity, intellectual people who have lost their way, strong people who live in fear of weakness and defeat. I long to take every one of them by the hand and lead them into the presence of Jesus, who said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why die of thirst when you stand on the brink of a lake? Why starve to death when you're within arm's length of living bread? Why live in a hovel of spiritual misery when Christ has provided a mansion of divine peace. Hear and accept the invitation today. Come unto me and I will give you rest. But rest is not all that weary people need. Other invitations to happiness await the distressed who will dare to follow Christ. 
A second invitation is to discipleship. During our meetings, our crusades, thousands of young people have surrendered their lives to Christ for full-time Christian service. Young people want adventure and excitement. They want more. They want something to believe in, a cause to give of themselves, a flag to follow. The only cause that is big enough is the cause of Jesus Christ. And the flag is the blood-stained body that was lifted on the cross of Calvary. This invitation to discipleship is the most thrilling ever to come to humankind. Just imagine being a working partner with God in the redemption of the world. And the third invitation is to live in the realm of God. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, John 15. Personal salvation is not an occasional rendezvous with deity. It is an actual dwelling with God. Christianity is not an avocation. It is a lifelong, eternity-long vocation. In my travels around the world to preach the gospel, I have been surrounded by angry mobs. I've walked down dangerous jungle trails. I've been in storms on the sea. I have walked down streets where every eye was hostile. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? In the midst of a thousand dangers, I have sensed the all-protecting presence of God Himself. These three invitations are not mine. They are given by Jesus Himself. No man or woman has ever found complete rest apart from Christ. To the multitudes of distressed, troubled, and weary, He beckons, come to me and I will give you rest. Do you want to know rest, joy, peace, security, affection? Do you want to know what it means to belong? Surrender and commit your life and your heart to Jesus. I guarantee that you can know peace with God, peace of soul, peace of mind, and joy like you've never experienced it. Wow. Jesus, we humbly come before you today. We are so grateful for the invitation that you have given to all of us. And more than that, God, that you have called us to be a part of your work in this world. That we not only understand this invitation, but we are able, Lord Jesus, to invite others to know you. Lord, maybe the conviction of this message, maybe the question I've asked earlier in the message is still kind of churning on someone's heart. What has God done for you? Lord, maybe there's someone sitting here over in sanctuary, listening online, that just can honestly answer, I don't know. I've believed in my head, but I've never believed in my heart. I don't have this peace. I don't experience this joy. My life is a mess. I, I really have no testimony. Lord Jesus, if that's the case, then right now, right now, we need to surrender to you. We need to give you our heart give you our lives. Lord, fill us, touch us, transform us, give us life, give us this peace, Lord, that Billy Graham describes, even walking down the most dangerous streets of the world with every eye shooting daggers, that he would know and experience the all-surpassing, awesome, divine, spiritual presence of you in and with us. God, if there's anyone listening right now that needs to know that peace,
Come, we open our hearts to you, Jesus. Fill us, live in us, change us. Lord, give us a testimony so that we can be your light to others in a dark world. Lord Jesus, we give you our heart. In Jesus' name. Thank you.